listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody, and welcome back. This is going to be another one of those short introductions because, I mean, to be honest, we're on a roll right now with great conversations. We have had some of the best conversations, some of the best guests, some of the best stuff over the last few weeks and months. And today is no exception. I'm just really excited to share with you this conversation that I had with William Derizowitz, whose name I'm not the best at pronouncing, but who's one of my intellectual heroes. Um, When I was at USC about five or six years ago, uh, Bill's book, Excellent Sheep, came out. And it was a book about what happens to young people as they're being prepared for and then swept up in elite educational universities like USC or Harvard or Yale or Stanford and places like that. And I was right there in the center of it. And boy, It was one of those books about something that you haven't thought a lot about, and then you realize it has massive implications. And it it was the book I handed out. It was the book I talked about the most for a long time. And when I found out that Bill had another book coming out right now, literally just dropping in the last month or two, I, 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 I wanted to see what it was about. And it was called Death of the Artist, The Death of the Artist. And I thought, it, it, and it turns out it's a book about what's happening to freelance artists in the midst of the gig economy and the internet age and all this stuff. What's happening to music now that we don't sell it in record stores? What's happening to authors and, and what's happening to, to, to painters and people like that? And I thought, what a weird book to be releasing in the midst of the COVID pandemic. And it turns out I was... When, when, I, when I got in touch with Bill's people, it turns out, yeah, that, that, it's a book that is not captured a lot of attention because there's so much else going on. But when I read it, especially now in the midst of this crisis, this is, not, this is a really important time to think about like how important is art and storytelling? How important is beauty making and creativity? How important are these things? And, and how... Are they be, how is the production of art and the kind of art that we see and the way we consume it, how is it being changed by the technology all around us? And, and Bill did a deep dive on this stuff. I read the book. I thought it was amazing. I'm so, I was so excited that I got to talk to him about it. Um, and I guess, you know, in some ways, when, after I was done, I thought like, wait, this is an incredibly relevant book in the COVID moment, in this moment, because our whole world is being reshaped. And if there's anything that the pandemic is doing, it's increasing the power of things like Amazon and Apple and Google. And these are the forces that Bill kind of digs into and, 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 and really sees the human toll that they're taking in the world of creativity, which I think is a microcosm for a lot of other things. And so, yeah, I, I look, I'm not going to overwhelm you with a preview of the conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. So with no further ado, except to thank David Bell, my beloved buddy, who has come on as one of the people who supports this show, joining the array of wonderful people that support this show. Without any further ado except that, this is me and Bill Derizowitz talking about art and life and humanity and goodness. Um, see you on the other side.
I read Mark's piece about you. Yeah. In the Times, and that it really helped me to understand where you're coming from. And I had a I had like a weekly column, I guess, blog for the American Scholar a few years ago. And one week I wrote a piece called "My Atheism Dash an Interim Report," and it was about <laughs> my. It, these are very short pieces, and it was about my break from the Orthodox Judaism that I grew up with and my militant atheism when I was young and how I've come to, um, how my relationship to religious people, let's say my relationship to religious people more than my relationship to religion has changed. Like my relationship to religion, not in other words, not in a personal sense, but um, just understanding uh, what parts of religion are very actually very close to what I do as a secular person um, and maybe some parts that are the ones that I would reject in the same way that I rejected them when I was 15. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it's funny because like, there's a point in, in death of the artist where you talk about the paradigm shifting from yeah. art being the, the realm of the church and, and the church, right. patri- you know, and, and, and the rich. And you, you, but you talk about how, when that, happens art becomes kind of like almost like secular religion like that's where people go for transcendence that's where people go for for meaning and for narratives that 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 help them to understand their place in the world absolutely and and that's how it functions for me but what i think i i understand more fully is that that is not incompatible with religion in in some of its manifestations i mean basically there's I don't want to be schematic about it, but, you know, there's, I think, religion that's not only dogmatic, but that, that also believes it has, it has truths about realms that are more properly um, uh, assigned to science, like the physical world, you know, the age of the universe, whatever. And there's religion or an aspect of religion that, that's, that's doing what, what art is trying to do, that's, you know, humanistic, and is asking ethical and spiritual questions that are not susceptible despite what people like Steven Pinker might think that are not susceptible to scientific reasoning or scientific research. Yeah. And that are permanent questions that we always need to ask ourselves and we can need to ask, and we can ask them through art. We can ask them through religion, uh, philosophy. And, you know, and, and science. I mean, the, you know, the, well, can we, I, some, yeah. I mean, I, when I was at USC, I, you know, they, they located me uh, under the Dean of religious life and he said, you know, the dean there said, like, you know, at USC, we think of religion as the pursuit of life's ultimate questions. You know, where do we come from? What happens when we die? What makes something right or wrong? What makes for a meaningful life? And he said, yeah. those are the questions that you're asking with your students. You know, you're drawing them together. And, you know, your thesis is that since this life is the only one that we have, the way to make right. the most of it is by building meaningful relationships with each other. And by doing work that we believe makes things better for others and by cultivating gratitude and wonder and understanding of just sort of the privilege of, of consciousness in the first place. And he said, mm-hmm. to me, you know, he's like, you're a religious leader, you know, because you're trying to, you're creating right. a community a, a, around a set of answers to those questions. Um, like yeah. everybody else is. And, you know, and science becomes a really important tool for, under, you know, I mean, science can take you wherever, 
science can't tell you where you want to go, but it, it can sure help you get there. And, and so if you're trying to figure out like, how do I build a meaningful relationship with another person? The data can be really helpful. Really? Oh, yeah. If you think about like uh, Danny Kahneman and all that behavioral economics stuff. Yeah. You know, in a simple in a simple analysis, like you figure out that human beings are wired in such a way that when they eat together, um, the act of eating together lowers people's inhibitions, makes them more able to trust and connect with each other. And you say, oh, well, so if I'm trying to build a community, we should eat together on a regular basis. And you go, like, the data suggests that. I mean, yeah. my, kids at, my kids at USC, I convinced them that we needed to sing songs together. And they were like, that sounds like, you know, religious gobbledygook. And I was like, I've got data that would suggest that collective okay. movement, you know, that, that stuff works. Yeah. Here, now, here's the thing. and We don't need to go down this road. And I think it may be uh, tangential to what we mainly want to talk about. Sure. But I'm not going to say I completely reject that way of thinking. But I really don't like that way of thinking, and I'll tell you why. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you why. I, enjoy, I know that you know Kahneman and Tversky have have have, have um, uh, shown some really counterintuitive things. But very often, when I hear you know we have data now. In fact, another one of the pieces that I wrote for that blog was uh, I gave it a sarcastic title called um, "Researchers Discover Art Has Meaning" or "Researchers Discover Art Has Value." Like, because researchers have, you know, there have been published papers like, if you read a book, you will be more empathetic. It's like, dude, we didn't need Kahneman to tell us that eating together builds community. Okay. First of all, I think everybody knows that from their personal experience. Second of all, it's embodied in every culture in the world. And third of all, and this is my argument for my own, and it's not for other people. It's, I mean, I offer it to other people as a possibility, but for my own, let's say, art-based spirituality, humanities-based spirituality, the arts, and for me, literature in particular, uh, constitute a limitless sea of, of, of what I would call wisdom, what someone else might call data, for all, for for you know how to have good friendships. What are the pitfalls of ambition? What what are the you know the endless ramifications and varieties of love? I mean, and now scientists are coming along and conducting these ridiculous you know uh, studies with fifty undergraduates that purport to prove what what everyone is like you know. I don't need a study to tell me that urban life is stressful because it, you know, it raises my cortisol levels. You know, it's, it's so interesting to hear you say that because I think to myself, you say, everybody knows. And I go like, that's so interesting because I've worked with college students as you have for most of my life. And you would think like, everybody knows that jumping through hoops and getting the best job and making the most money, the same thing that made your parents empty shells and that made you not want to be like them. Everybody knows that that would be a terrible path to pick. And yet all those students were going to Yale and being excellent cheap and running along. And they needed somebody to break in and say, hey, kiddo, have you ever thought about like what the purpose of life is? So like everybody doesn't know. Okay. Fair enough. And I also tend to speak in absolutes, which in my mind, they're hyperbo hyperbolic, but, but I know my listener may not always know that I mean them hyperbolically, and I don't mean everybody, but you make a great point. I think what I'm saying is 
that when you say, hey, I've got data to show that we can build community by eating together, you are ceding to science the authority to interpret experience and, and make predictions about experience that, first of all, belongs I'm not going to so I'm not going to rule science out completely. I actually think it's a very weak tool. That authority belongs I think much more much more legitimately to humanities, to the humanities, to religion insofar as it's a branch of the humanities and to personal experience. This is the other thing I hate about data shows. Like I want people to consult their personal experience I think, first of all, art is built on pers the personal experience of the artist anyway. But I want this. So, so for instance, with the excellent sheep thing, I don't say to people, like, look at the data on mental health. I mean, I do say this to parents. You know, look at the data on mental health, you know, problems among high-achieving kids, which are all appalling and all that stuff. But when I'm talking to a kid or a group of kids, I say, don't listen to me. Don't trust me. Look inside. Look to your own experience. So like I said, in the excellent cheap sort of paradigm, like if it's working for you and for some people it works or there's no telling them that it's not working because they're, they feel fine. But I mean, for so many of these kids, and I think for me myself in my own experience with this, the important, the point of departure and the most important datum is how it's making them feel. And like, Either they know that they're miserable or they're refusing to acknowledge to themselves that they're miserable. So if you sort of gently kind of poke at that, prod at that and say, like, how is this making you feel? That that's that's the the necessary and sufficient condition of helping them get out of this, you know, it's, adolescent it's, rat race. Bless your heart for saying that it's sufficient because you clearly haven't worked with many uh, <laughs> post-evangelical Christians because the absurdity of looking at somebody and saying, trust your feelings, who has been raised in an atmosphere that says that, that literally says to them, do not trust your feelings. Trust this authority. Trust this word mm. of God. Trust mm. what I'm telling you here. And so that kid, when that when his Christian worldview falls apart, whether he's 20 or 50 at the time, yeah. he doesn't know. He doesn't, he, he, he's not confident in his own feelings. He, does, he hasn't developed that sort of sense of personal trust. That, that's, a very, that, that's a very great privilege to have that kind of inner self-confidence to trust your own feelings. And you say, well, why would that person, why would they be comforted by scientific data that tells them stuff that everybody ought to know? And the answer is because it's, it's not just my feelings, like, because I don't trust myself. Remember me, buddy? I believed in a God who was going to burn everyone in eternal damnation for not subscribing to our religion 20 minutes ago. And so, like, if, if, if once you lose trust in yourself, yeah. You know, and the problem with the fancy Yale professor who stands up and says, hey, kids, trust yourself is, is that really, it, you're really, they're really asking you to trust them. Like, I know what I'm talking about here, buddy. And, and, and that's oftentimes the professor can end up being just another God figure, another sort of authority figure. It's hard to learn to trust yourself. Well, first of all, thank you again for calling me out another absolutistic statement. Um, I do think that there's a big difference between the kinds of kids you've been talking to 
and the kinds that I tend to, because of course, one thing you can say about the culture they come from, for good or bad, is that it at least nominally tells them to trust their feelings. Um, so you have more purchase, you have more leverage when you say, how is this making you feel? Uh, after all, the whole purpose of life in that world, and I think this is problematic, is, you know, be happy. That's like the highest good. So already feelings have more authority. But I do just want to say in terms of, you know, the Yale professor with authority. I mean, first of all, when I come to kids, aside from the fact that I'm not a Yale professor anymore, um, I don't have institutional authority. I'm actually really fighting to get any kind of authority I can. In this, or I shouldn't say authority. I should say credibility, right? Yeah, that's a better Because word. I am fighting against the messages they're getting from people who have tremendous authority and credibility. So my point is, I don't want to stand, first of all, I don't want to stand on some authority whether I had, you know, I don't either, even if I had institutional authority, I wouldn't want to stand on that. I want to try again. I, I hear what you said about no, it's, it's charismatic authority people, that the like, professor has. It's charismatic. It's, it's the guy who stands up and goes, that guy knows what he's talking about. That guy's like that guy under, like he has a vibe. Okay. He, and, and I, and I know that I sometimes possess that authority or credibility for people, but you're making me realize this is part of why I say to them, like, don't trust me. Don't believe this just because I'm saying it. This is only valid if it's resonating with your own experience. And, 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 and that's what you must consult. And if you consult your own experience and you realize that this is making you miserable, I can help you think through those things. And, and, but I can't initiate for you. No, I, and, and I, I understand that. I, I think that the, 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 the weird thing is when I've skied for 15 years on the Alps and then I'm skiing down and the snow feels wrong to me, I trust my own experience. But when I'm, when I'm the first time out there, I literally, I know what I feel, but I don't know what it means or whether to trust it. I don't know if it, I, I, I don't even know, I don't know my, I, I know my sensations, but I don't, I'm not able to interpret them as well. And I think a lot of times, when people come out of either very strong families, very strong religions, or they're just young, they don't yet know which feelings to trust. And so, you know, I've seen kids throw away really wonderful opportunities and relationships over for another relationship that an outsider looks and goes like, you just fell in love with a guy. Like, like that's, that's going to be over in a month. Um, yeah. You know, and so trust, even trusting your own feelings, and 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 this is a perfect segue because I, I like, I, like I actually want to, I want to talk to you about art, and and this is a perfect segue because on some level, one of the things that happens to kids that are being raised in art that is not nuanced, that is competing in the Darwinian, what did you call it, the Darwinian? I, I love that phrase, um, attention uh, derby. Yeah, yeah, Darwinian attention derby. Yes. Is that very visceral art, very visceral messages, not not nuanced, not necessarily thoughtful, but like lowest common denominator shit. Yeah. That really, tr like these kids have been raised with, and that is the, the water they swim in. That's the art that they've taken in. And so their feelings are not tuned. Their instincts are not sophisticated and, or, or yeah. reliable. And so a big part of what nurturing, I think, a young person today is, is trying to create experiences that enable them to get in touch with 
a layer of feelings and a layer of meanings that the culture maybe used to deliver. Maybe religion delivered it before that, mm. but like ain't nobody delivering it now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These are some shallow kids. And, 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 that's, and that's not, and I'm not blaming them for being shallow. I'm saying like when they were children growing up and people were supposed to be teaching them how to be in touch with themselves, a lot of times they weren't teaching them how to be in touch with themselves. They were teaching them how to respond to really shitty stuff that sells them things. That's a great point. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, I actually tried to avoid making value judgments in this book. I think you can already tell that that's a hard thing for me to I do. I don't know how you could, how you could you do that, man. When you well, when you when you're talking about when you're talking about a, 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 a realm that is being decimated by corporate money, I, I well, don't know how you how could you keep your value system out of that. Well, this is what I mean. What I'm really trying to document is how the economic underpinnings of art, because they're shifting, they're shifting what we think art is, is shifting, and what we think good art is, is shifting. And of course, I lament the fact that kids who are growing up with, you know, pop music and EDM and first person shooter video games and whatever their culture is, I lament the fact that their standards of what good art is, is going to be based on the art that they're exposed to and like. But my purpose in the book was not to write a work of cultural criticism. So that's what I mean. I kind of bracket it. I kind of quarantine it. But that's the thing. People deeply love the arts. Everybody does, right? Whatever kind of art they're listening to or you know, absorbing, even if we think it's crap, there's nobody in the world, or I'm making an absolute statement, very few people, right? They may not think of it as art because that may sound like a pretentious word to them. Entertainment, um, call it what I will. All in, in, it's it's incredibly important for almost everybody. I think that's fair to say. Many many people, um, and the artists that that are most important to them, they worship, they venerate, they treat as demigods. You know, but I think first of all, the like the like sort of like when just sort of the generic idea of an artist, or like when when you meet an artist or hear about a young person who's pursuing the arts. I think the reflex in our culture is disdain and also resentment. Like, who are you to think that you're an artist? Who are you to think that you have a right to do this? Or like, why are you like condemning yourself to poverty? And as I say in the book, you you know, children and adolescents and young adults who aspire towards the arts are discouraged at every turn. So that's one thing is that we have this weird kind of, um, schizophrenia about loving art and worshiping certain artists on the one hand, but having a kind of general contempt for the sort of the generic artist. And the other time thing out, is- Time out, time out, Because yeah. I, I'm, like, I just read this great book that described yeah. to me how at one turn, people are not discouraged from calling themselves artists and thinking of themselves as artists. And there's like- right. Art schools are like, think of yourself as an artist. Like, you're not going to make any money, but we're going to charge you $100,000 before you figure that out. Like, it's true and not true at the same time in some way, right? Well, you're, you're helping me. You are helping me tease these things out because I still think that what I'm saying is true. The book you're referring to, of course, is my book. Right. And I inveigh against this idea that everyone's an artist and point out that the notion that everyone's an artist has been sold to us by the companies that – that stand to make a profit from us believing that. 
and the educational um, institutions that stand to make a profit from us believing that too. You mean the 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 art schools? Art schools and for-profit art schools. The, the for-profit art schools are horrible predators, but they don't have very much of a presence in the culture. So I don't think that the general idea that everybody should be an artist is being sold by the art schools. But it's true, like Masterclass, you know, this, this company yeah. that, you know, charge. yes, there is an industry that is selling us the idea that everyone's an artist. And, and I think if you ask the average person, they would get offended if you said that everyone isn't an artist. Or at least, or at least anyone I've ever said that to gets offended. I'm like, you must be kidding me. Everyone is not an artist, but we can leave that aside for a second. Okay. Because what I'm talking about is something different, and it's something real. Notwithstanding all of this, that's I think sold to kind of adult hobbyists. I think that's what we can say. What we're talking about is a message that's sold to adult hobbyists or maybe some naive young people by the for-profit art schools. Okay. But. Consistently, the testimony of the artists I interviewed was that as children, they were discouraged as adolescents, as young adults by their parents. In other words, not from, oh, you know, record a song with GarageBand and put it up on the Internet and you'll be famous. That's the Silicon Valley. That's what we've just been talking about. No, I want to be a musician. I'm 10, 15, 20. I want to be an artist. That's what I want to, want to make my living doing, my life doing. That meets with tremendous resistance in comprehension, in school. Like the schools don't know what to do with those kids. They're not, if they're not also academically gifted in an excellent, cheap way, they're dumb, they're lazy, you know, and, and, and often they kind of fall through the cracks. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. Even the rich kids, even the even the rich are are Especially. I want to be an artist. Kids, um, I I mean I don't think there's much difference. I mean, with a kid like that, it's like why why are you why are you throwing away the opportunity to be a rich computer jerk for this? I mean, you know, yes, it's true that a lot of the artists who do, I mean, a lot of artists also come from wealthy backgrounds, but it doesn't mean that they had the kind of psychological encouragement from their parents. You know, I mean, there's a whole set, there's a whole set of mythologies about the artist that it may be different in other cultures, but in America, an artist is like a lazy, self-indulgent weirdo. Okay. None of which is true of actual artists, especially the lazy part. Um, but that's the mythology. And it's, um, you know, we're utilitarian society. Art doesn't seem to have practical value. It's not well compensated financially. Um, why, you know, why? Why would you do it? And why would I care about you if you're complaining that you can't make a living doing it? You shouldn't have done it in the first place. But there's another piece to it that I think is really important. And that is unique to our era, which is that, um, I mean, I compare art today to fast food and what we call fast fashion, you know, cheap clothing made in Vietnam and Bangladesh. Um, nobody wants to be told that they're, that they're cheap uh, beef or their $10 dress is being made uh, on the backs of immiserated workers. Nobody wants to hear that the free music that they love, that's one of the you know, great entitlements of the 21st century, is destroying the ability of, of musicians to make a living. Nobody wants to hear that. And in fact, when musicians started to say it, when Napster came along in 99, and suddenly the rug was pulled out of the record industry and, and musicians' livelihoods, 
the response online from fans was like, tough luck. You don't deserve to get paid for your music, you rich rock star. Go find some other way to make a living or make a living off your music. Or you shouldn't be making a living off your music. You should be working your day job and be pure and be, you know, the, a real, a true indie musician. That was the response. Well, you see, and, and that's a lot of people go like, that's not a problem. Beyonce made $100 million last week. That's not a right. problem. Justin Bieber is doing fine. And they have this, they see five people, you know, that are making tons of money and they go like, you see, if you, it, it is possible. Like, there's no problem. Right. There's plenty of money in the arts. Right. Now, now decimate that argument because I know you can. <laughs> okay. Well, understanding that this is an analogy, but and many things about this analogy don't fit. But to me, it's analogous to saying there's no racism because Barack Obama became president. Like the or Which there's is no true. racism, because, and I've heard many people say it. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> or there's no racism because like Kid X, who grew up in the ghetto, is now you know a rich doctor running a company. Ben it's Carson, like, yeah. my gosh, yes, beautiful story. Yeah, it's like yes, some people can still climb out of this situation, but that doesn't mean it's a good situation. And you know there are several million people who work in the arts in this country. I mean, it's hard to estimate, but it's probably, you know, several, like several million. Um, only two of them are Justin Bieber and Beyonce. And the vast majority of artists are in a very different situation. And in particular, and I want to stress this because you haven't asked me this question, but I think it's a question that naturally occurs to people. Yes, making a living as, as an artist has always been hard. And the the stereotype of the struggling artist or the starving artist is based on reality. But before the internet came along, if you were a mid what you know a mid tier artist, right? Not famous, but a but a professional working artist who had recognition in the field, who had a fan base, who produced work on a regular basis, you could live a middle class life. It doesn't mean you had middle class values. You were an artist. It meant that you had a stable, decent, affordable housing, affordable health care. Maybe you could send your kids to college. Um, that middle tier, as is true across the economy, is getting wiped out. And now that mid-tier full-time working artist is basically that's a working class job description, which means that you're poor. You don't have affordable, decent housing, affordable health care. And far from being able to send your kids to college, you may feel that you can't afford to have kids at all. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's the interesting thing is, is the professional artist was a lower middle class person in, you know, in, in, in post-World War II. Like it wasn't, you, you weren't going to make a huge amount, but you could make a living. Yeah. And what you're saying is, is that what's happened, like, What's happening to these artists is what's happening to like everybody who is in that yeah. that that ball game. The weird thing is, is that all of society, including the very wealthy in society, feed off those artists. Like they all, it's it, you know, it's it's sort of like if the spotted owl was going away. Um, if if some fungus came in and was wiping out the spotted owls, people go like, "Yeah, oh, that's a shame." If it was wiping out chicken, people go like, "Oh my gosh, we all eat chicken!" You know, like we we got to do something about the chicken. Um, 
because it's something that we, even though we don't all produce chickens, we all consume them. And I feel like this, you know, in some sense, the, the problem is, is if we, if we get left with just Beyonce and Justin Bieber and a handful of others, there won't be an ecosystem to produce the next, even if you like, you know, even if that's what you want, right. those guys rose up out of a larger artistic community right. that won't, that just won't exist. You, you, you won't, you have no farm team for your major leaguers. That's right. It's a, it's a huge, first of all, I love your analogy. I think that's a great analogy. And then also what you say about the ecosystem, and I talk about that a little bit, a bit in the book. I mean, teachers and, and you know, peers when you're young and mentors and, you know, people who run the clubs that you're playing in when you're young. And, and uh, you know, every, I mean, you know, the, you know the, the, the guy who sells the beer at the club. I mean, it's all, there's an arts economy that, it, again, it employs several million people. And, and you don't get the superstars unless you have that. There's, there's, a, there's a substrate that they arise out of. So, I mean, look, this is also why, why do, you know, why does New Orleans produce so many great musicians? It's not something in the water It's because they have a great music culture there and a culture, you know, at the, at the culture, at, at the economic level, a culture is an ecosystem, right? That's what creates a culture. It's an interweb of people. So, so is the death of the arts, is that like a canary in a coal mine for a wider, a wider death? Like you go, do you just say like, yeah, there's, there's a whole element of our society that's, that's being squeezed from both ends. And, um, well, I mean, if we're talking about, you know, the, the sort of the, the death of the middle class and the death of dignified work for sure. And that's why, you know, my sort of my final, you know, recommendations or calls to action or reach reach beyond the arts altogether because what you know after i talk about the arts as an ecosystem i say the whole economy is an ecosystem and in an ecosystem every part has to be healthy for every other part to be healthy and if we want to rebuild the arts economy for artists we what we really need to do is rebuild the whole economy for everybody um for one thing you know so the audience can also have money to pay for art and feel you know feel like they're able to do that but also just you know we're talking about healthcare higher education housing costs i mean these are some these are some of the things that are eating away at artists ability to make a living but it's so many other people's ability to make a living you know it's it's interesting because as i was as i was thinking about this it, you know it feels like a classic labor situation where people need to organize or unite um that that the, the corporate powers that be are picking off artists one by one, or make you know that every that they've they've turned them into people that are competing against each other to produce content that somebody else makes money on, because that, that's one of the central arguments that I, I I picked up was oh absolutely Google and and Amazon and Apple and Facebook that they make money off of everybody else's content. And so what's great for them is, is if I can, if I can have you all competing to produce the content and you're, you're like, well, I'll sell mine a little cheaper. No, I'll sell mine a little cheaper. So eventually you get everybody like, I'll make mine for free. Um, yeah. And they make a kajillion dollars off of delivering the content. Yes. And the person who creates the content gets nothing. Um, it, it, that the only way that that would, the only way you could stop that would be if all the content creators looked at each other and said, we're going on strike. We're not going to give them any content unless they pay us all fairly. Um, 
Yeah, so first of all, yes, it's the platforms. I mean, Apple may have its own issues, but it's mainly the platforms, Google, Facebook, Amazon. Um, and the fact that, you know, quote unquote, free content or demonetized content is actually incredibly lucrative and literally tens of billions of dollars a year are being diverted by the platforms to themselves from the creators to whom it should really go. And, and those platforms um, don't, and, and also like those platforms don't care if the content is pirated either, like they still make money on it. In fact, they still make money on it, and the fact that they, not that they tolerate, they, I mean, they could, they could eliminate piracy from their sites, just like they've eliminated, you know, bogus pharmaceuticals or pornography or whatever. They don't because it's not only lucrative for them, but the standing threat of piracy, of like we can price your content at zero, forces people like musicians and labels to accept their terms, like we will, we will license our catalog to Spotify if we're a label because if we don't we'll just they'll just they'll just pirate it we won't get anything at all or musicians will accept what they get you know the, the streaming rate from youtube and they don't even have to tell us what it is it seems to be 0.07 cents per stream not seven cents seven hundredths of a cent which means that if your music is streamed a, a million times on youtube you get seven hundred dollars and okay what can artists do about it? They can't all get together and go on strike. For one thing, that's an impossibility. For another thing, I actually think it would be illegal. I think it would be collusion, right? Because in this situation, artists are, um, it's like companies colluding to fix price. But there are ways that we can deal with these platforms. We can break them up and we can also, as we've done with monopolies before, but we can't really break up the platform. We can we can break up the companies, which we need to do. But I mean, the actual core Facebook platform can't be broken up. It's really the. Uh, but it it's could really be. Right? The, it could be regulated. It could be regulated. That's what, the way we regulate rates for for utility monopolies and railroad monopolies back in the day. That's what we need to do. And and by the way, when like the book Zucked came out and. The, all these tech people that had left the industry were saying, we got to break up Facebook. We got to break up these monopolies. Like there was a moment where that was very much in the news. Yeah. And it strikes me that I think this book actually in some ways fits into those other, those other ideas of you have no, I, you think that Google is giving you stuff for free. You think Facebook is a free platform, but it is robbing you of everything that you value. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, there there have been books about that, and they're good books. Franklin Foer wrote World Without Mind, uh, F-O-E-R. He was the editor right. of The New Republic, so he saw firsthand what it was doing to journalism. And, and it, they're absolutely consonant with my book. Yes. Um, you're right. We, we There was this moment, and what moment are we in now? Well, I just – you may have just read this. Apple just became the first company to be valued at $2 trillion. I was so happy for Two. them. No. I was so well, happy. Not for one. And big tech in general, the big five, their market value has increased 37% since the start of the year. 37%. And the whole rest of the stock market has gone down 6%. So they are the big, big winners. I'm hopeful, though, and I'm not a hopeful person, but I. I don't see that this has interrupted the momentum of the sort of anti-tech, you know, break up, regulate big tech. Um, it, I, it's, it, I think it remains to be seen. I think people are aware of just how 
big and scary these companies are becoming, and it is also around the election and their role in all of that. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful that, there, that we might actually start to tackle some of this. Stuff. So, so help me understand one thing, though, um, because the market forces and the way that they're squeezing artists, theoretically, should mean that we're going to get shallow or worse art done by people that have less time to work on it and less time to develop before they run out of money. And, you know, that, 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 that the quality and the nuance and the level of art and, and boy, I, I, I could make, I could probably make that argument in music. I could probably make that argument in, in films, even, you know, like another Marvel mm -hmm, universe, mm -hmm. but then I turn on mm -hmm. television. Why is TV so good? TV's better than it ever was. And I say this in the book. I say this very early in the book because I know that because there's still a lot of money in TV because you still pay your cable bill, HBO. I mean, I don't know what, you know, Disney Plus, Apple Plus, ESPN Plus. There, we, there's still an enormous amount of money in addition to investments from uh, Amazon and, and Net, you know, Netflix. Uh, it's still, but if that's because we, you know, we Amazon it comes from Amazon Prime money. It comes from our Netflix subscription. So somehow TV has managed to prevent their uh, content from going the way of music content and being pirated regular. I don't even understand technologically how that's possible. I understand that there are people who are trying to do it, and we'll see if somebody can invent a Napster for television. But if you demonetize television, television will turn to garbage very quickly. There's still a huge amount of money coming from the consumer into the television ecosystem. Which means that I, I can still make money by making a really good TV show. So I'm still incentivized right. to become a great TV show maker. Yeah. And, and, and all of the, you know, certainly all the people from movies, which as you say, have been decimated, they've all migrated to TV because yeah. that's where the creative opportunities are. Yeah. And so interesting too, because one of the things that you said that I hadn't thought about is, you know, what do I get when I buy a record album or when I buy a painting? And in some ways, like, you get the next painting. Like, by, by buying this painting, you give that person enough money to make another painting. Right. And if you right. stop paying them, you go like, well, I can get this painting for free. And you're like, yeah, but the next painting then won't happen. And, and I, I, you know, television is a great example where – People can make money making one television show, and then that buys them enough time to think up the next one and to pull their team together and do it. And in these other forms, like you can make a great song, and then you can't, ju you just can't make the second song. Yeah, and I, I think careers are a lot shorter. I mean, again, I think people might have trouble hearing this argument because there's still great art being made and there's still people who are lucky enough to be able to establish careers. But I think it's much harder for careers to get to get going. I think people quit sooner, much sooner. They don't have time to really develop to the point where they're making work that's, you know, really valuable and recognized. And so what we're really we're we're getting in many instances art that's shallower, but we're also it's the art that never gets made that we're losing. And, and as I point out in the book, you know, I look at Queen, David Bowie, and Elvis Costello, some of the people I was listening to when I was young, who came out in the 70s, kind of the golden age of the LP and going into the CD, you know, a little bit later. And they were each, at least early in their careers, they were each releasing an album about once a year. And I think that was pretty typical back then. I mean, the Beatles, God knows they're the Beatles, but they did 13 albums in seven years. 
And then I say, look at uh, Adele, Beyonce, and Lady Gaga. In their first 10 years, they didn't do 10 or 11 albums. They did three, four, or five. And that's because even for them, the money is in live performance. The money is in touring. And, you know, touring is exhausting and time-consuming, and you make and record the music around that. I mean, the Beatles stopped touring altogether, right, when they entered their greatest period. So that's not an option anymore. So what were the other, you know, six albums that Lady Gaga could have made in her first 10 years that we'll never hear? Because she didn't have the time to think them up. Yeah, and what's interesting is is that, you know, the way our brains develop and the way our lives develop and our life cycles as human beings it feels like if you don't if you don't squeeze the really great stuff out of people in that early period that that's when they are fecund you know that's that's when that's when the great stuff gets made isn't it um i think it depends on the art i mean i think um sort of the genres of popular music we're talking about you know the beatles and dylan i mean that's in some ways, it's akin to romantic poetry. You know, Keats died when he was 25, and Shelley, I think, was 30. So it, that's very much a young person's game. I think other arts, I mean, really, novelists don't even start to write good novels until they're 30, usually. Um, so it depends. But whether we're talking about young musicians who can't make as much as, as much music as they might otherwise would have uh, in their best period, or, or novelists who never have a chance to get to their best period, to their 40s, to their 50s, because, you know, uh, art, I mean, author incomes are down, you know, just like everybody else, just like everyone else is in the arts, right? Advances are down. Freelance writing uh, income is down. Uh, people used to be able to make a living writing a book every three years or whatever. You can't do that anymore. So you have to either write lots and lots of shit or, or get a different job and, and do that. Or be rich or be rich. That's the other thing. And so you're going to end up just getting art made by rich people. Well, by rich, you know, by, I mean, rich people, but really people with rich parents. And no, I mean, that's the truth is the arts have always skewed that way precisely because they're so economically precarious. I don't have numbers on this, but a lot of people told me that in their art, they're seeing it skew even more so to the trust fund set. Theater, you know, indie, you know, sort of avant-garde theater directors or, or documentarians or painters, whatever. Yeah. Well, politics are the same way. To gain the, the education and the network and the experience that you need to be really politically savvy – you have to do all these internships. You have to go to Washington. You have to work as a, you know, in, in these jobs that don't pay anything. And so, yeah, you know, our, our politics are going to be shaped by the children of trust funds, because that's the only people that can stick around long enough to gain a foothold. I mean, my my, my it's funny. My uh, my niece graduated from Yale's uh, Yale with uh, a drama degree, and she's a really gifted uh, director. And she's down there in New York right now, um, sort of doing the hustle. And, you know, her parents have completely shelled out um, to support her in, in this. And she's beautiful at it. She's, she's, she's got all the right instincts and she's there for all the right reasons. But she's, you know, we're all really aware that if they weren't two really successful lawyers, we, there would not be a budding director in New York City right now. Yeah, that's exactly right. 
And uh, is that the kind of world we want to live in? We, we, we're very focused on diversity now, as we should be, and we're, much of that conversation is about, you know, whose voice gets to be heard. Yeah. You know, certainly in the culture industries, in publishing, there's a lot, in journalism, there's a lot of ferment about that, as there should be. But what we have to understand is that this is deeply connected to economics, that we can have diversity unless we look at the economics. And if, you know, you, you talked about politics and, and your niece, but a lot of artists get their foothold, say, say writers will get a job at a publishing company or a, or a journal um, as a junior editor or an editorial assistant. And these jobs, and their jobs in New York, these are jobs that don't pay a living wage for New York, right? For New York rents. Yeah. So who are they? They're kids with rich parents who are floated by their parents and they're mainly white kids. So, so I got, I mean, I don't like you were asking me about the audience of this podcast and on some level, there are people like me who are trying to figure out you know, how do I make, make the most of my life? And, and they sort of settled in on, I think it's by building really close relationships and meaningful relationships and by doing work that makes things better for other people. Um, I mean, the, 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 these are the things that most reliably sort of, you know, the old Harvard study, you know, at the end of their lives, you know, who ends up feeling the best about their lives? People got a handful of relationships that are very meaningful to them. And, and they've done work that they feel good about. And they've cultivated some yeah. practices of gratitude so that they, they, they really they sit with existence in a way that makes them appreciate it. And, and so that's these people. Um, and that, certainly that's me. And so when I get done reading this book, and when I get done talking to you, what, what I guess I'm, I'm, I know how important art is. Like my life has been shaped by, and again, like not just art, like fiction and novels, but also works of nonfiction like Excellent Sheep. That, that's what's made my life rich. And so when I get done reading this book, I'm worried. I'm worried that as I am with so many things where I look at like the internet in other ways and I go like, I don't want my granddaughter to be shaped by that. You know, it was, it was, it was yeah. better when they read books, real books, put these, you know, uh, I don't want yeah. her to play with electronic toys. I want to, you know, I, I'm, I'm just like everybody else who thinks that life was better when I was a kid. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, again, to go back to our data conversation, like I think the data would suggest that life actually was better when I was a kid in terms of the life of the mind. Um, and so what do you think, like when you got done talking to all these artists and when you got done thinking this stuff through, did you come away with, for yourself as an individual person, did, did it change the way that you consume art or the way you think about art or the way you pay? Like, like, is there something you want to do differently now? No. Um, no. Can I just – You got to give me something yeah. to do. Let, I'll address the question in a second. I want to go back for a second. I will. I just – just in setting up the question, the way you talked about what makes life worth living um, – and the and kind of the the richness that art has brought to your life in terms of how it's helped you think through these things. That's why I believe that a college education, and I would even say a high school education, should be 
centered on the humanities, centered on encounters with these kinds of works. And it's not, they don't have to be Western humanities, just any of any anything that's going to do that for you, which will also have the benefit of teaching students what great art can do for you, and maybe they'll spend less time with crap. Um, doing the book did not change my relationship to art, because when you've allowed yourself, when you've trained your, you know, your taste, your sensibility on art that's really nourishing, then this kind of trivial kind of filler fat, you know, okay. What this book really uh, did change my mind about or, or, or deepen my sense of is, is artists themselves, right? Like, of course, I, I had always admired and felt great gratitude towards artists, but I didn't have a sense really of what it takes to be one. I mean, I mean, I knew on the art side what it took, right? Talent and obviously hard work and vision and all these mysterious qualities that they have. But qualities of character, the tenacity, the self-belief, the discipline, the willingness to do without, the resilience in the face of criticism, uh, the optimism, the generosity. I mean... Really, it was very, these interviews, and they were long interviews, they were just free-form conversations of an hour, sometimes two hours, um, they were deeply moving for exactly that reason. Like, they revealed to me these people, and they were just, you know, again, they're not famous artists, and I think most of them will never be famous, and I actually made a rule for myself that I... I could not find interview subjects by reading about an artist somewhere, because if I could read about them somewhere, somewhere prominent, they were already too famous for me. So I was talking to people mostly between the ages of 25 and 40, a few older ones, who were just doing the work. And without a lot of encouragement or financial reward um, or, you know, sort of uh, cultural prestige, and they were extraordinary people. And and so... I've always appreciated artists and marveled at their at their brilliance. I don't think I felt a deep sense of responsibility to them. Um, I sort of thought like, it looks like fun to be an artist. I wish I could do that. Um, so you don't make much money, but you get to do what you want. And I don't get to do what I want, but I make a little more money. And, you know, and, and, and when I look, at it through the, the lenses that you were looking at it, I thought, you know, um, I, I have to be responsible to them. Like they're doing something for me and I need to patronize them on some level. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm really glad that you got that. I think, I think that that's what I'm saying. I think that's what I'm trying to say. You know, um, stuff circulates on the internet so freely that it immediately or very quickly becomes detached from the person who created. I mean, people who create still images like illustrators are constantly complaining about this or photographers because those images will then circulate. People will pass yeah, it around on Facebook, yeah. whatever, but without credit and certain, let alone remuneration, but even without credit. So we need to make more of an effort to become aware of who we are as consumers of art, of content, for lack of a better word, on the Internet. That's right. Just like we've, we're trying to learn to become better, more conscious consumers of food and other things. It's so interesting. You know, I, a couple of years ago when I was out in California, I, 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 I talked with a woman who on the show who was a labor organizer for um, 
sex workers and por- pornography, you know, pornography. Yeah. And um, she was a really, really sharp and interesting person. And, um, and she was really, in some sense, saying, listen, the problem with pornography is not that you um, objectify women. Uh, the problem is that you don't pay them for the privilege. Um, that yeah. you, you, and, and you, you know, that, that you're, you know, that when you go on this, uh, you porn platform or, or whatever, that you're stealing. And, you know, it's, it, and, and again, like the person running the platform gets rich, the person creating right. the content doesn't, and it's really exploitative. And, and, and on some level, I think we, we all have a certain sympathy for sex workers, um, or we should and understand how easy it is for them to be exploited. And as I read your book, I thought like, oh, you know what? This isn't that different a conversation. Uh, there's a journalist named Ron, no, not Ron Johnson, John Ronson. Very funny guy. He wrote oh, that yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, he did, the, he did those podcasts. About, about the porn industry. Yes, yes. Yes. I didn't listen to the podcast, but I heard him talk about it, I think, on the New Yorker Radio Hour. And the analogies were immediately apparent to me. Yeah. Like also the fact that these girls show up in LA and like, I want to be a porn star. I love this industry and I'm going to make it. And like, you know, you're done in a few months and you're making 10% of what you would have made a generation ago. First of all, because of all the amateurs, it's just like an art. And second of all, because of the tech platforms, you know, Pornhub or whatever, those big porn platforms. And the fact that uh, Ronson said, the guys running them, they think they're running tech companies. They don't see themselves as pornographers. It's just like the it's just like the tech people who are, who are ripping off the artists. They have this set. They don't understand what they're doing. I mean, they. I mean, that lets them off too lightly. They are concealing themselves the moral from themselves the moral content of their behavior. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because you know I remember at one point when you were talking about um, the second lay, you know, like the the, the four sort of eras of art, you know, the artisan yeah. who, who turns into the bohemian, um, who turns into the professional, who turns into like now, like the one man show, the producer. Right. Um, but, but when you were talking about what freed art from, what freed the artist from just doing whatever the church told him, you're like, it was copyright. You know, it was, yeah. it was, it was the copyright yeah. law, uh, that, 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 that gave the artist control over what they made. And, you know, you think about sex workers and any exploited group of people. And he's just like, all I'm asking for is just, you know, just have control over my own body, to have control over my own product, to have control over what I make. Um, and, and it sounds like in some ways what, what's happening now is the, what the copyright gave us now, now the tech companies are able to sort of take away the copyright. Like it no longer matters you know, I don't have to respect your copyright. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah. And so on some level, maybe as, as a person who, who wants to have, because I, I don't just want to have a better relationship with my son and, and with my wife. I want to have a better relationship with the artists that I rely on. And I guess like in mm. some ways I have to restore the a, a personal, a sense of personal copyright where I go like, Okay, who made this, and what do I owe them? And, um, you know, it's funny because the, the podcast is a strange. I, 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 you don't call yourself an artist. I definitely don't call myself an artist. 
But I do know that the people that value the conversations that I, I share with them, um, that you know, they directly support it through that pa- Patreon thing that you wrote about. And and there is a sense in which, you know, they they basically say directly to me, like, listen, what you do matters to me. It's helpful and I wanna I wanna make sure it happens. So here you go. You know, yeah, I mean, do crowdfunding for the artists that do Patreon, do Kickstarter for the artists you really care about consistently, absolutely. But look, I'm I'm just gonna say something good about the market, about the capitalist market. And I think Adam Smith said this himself, that um one of the good things about it is that you don't have to create a relationship with everybody you trade with, you know, like the old model where you come in and you sip tea and like, you know, the people right. like, no, it's actually, it's actually in some ways good that we don't have to do that. And um, yeah, as long as it's regulated, because that's the point, that's the point is that, is that we need to step in collectively. Cause I, I want it like, I want it regulated. Like when it comes to my food, if I'm not going to have tea with my farmer, then I want the right. USDA to make sure he's not, putting, you know, botulism out there. So like, I, I want right. it, I, like I'll, I'll pay and I don't need to know you to pay you, but like, I want you regulated. Right. 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 Well, well, in, in the, and in this instance, um, again, because the payment, the payment mechanisms have so much friction in them, right? I mean, Patreon takes a lot of effort. Um, you can pay for a Spotify subscription, but Spotify is part of the problem. So really, the the money transfer has to happen elsewhere, as we talked about earlier. Like somehow the government has to, maybe by setting rates, maybe by setting streaming rates, just like they set electricity rates, telling YouTube, which is Google, how much you have to pay musicians, including the fact that you have maybe that you have to pay them all the same. Well, and, um, and just and, or just now. saying to YouTube, which is Google you have to shut down pirating on your site. Like you're not allowed to tolerate piracy on your site because then all of a sudden people would go like, I don't have to fear that my content's going to be, have zero, be sold for zero. So then I'll take 0.07. If if I knew that like I could actually sell it, then then at least it's back to being a, a market. Someone in a position to know, but who didn't have a statistic to cite. So I'm not going to say her name said that she read that up to a third of Google's profit comes from piracy. Because it's not just YouTube piracy, there are other ways that they profit from piracy. Think about that. And this is, this is again, this is a corporation that's worth in excess of a trillion and a half dollars. A third of their, of their revenue, they're also the largest, they have been for a number of years now, the largest lobbyist in Washington. No, and here we are fucking making this podcast on Chrome using Patreon, which they probably own. I know. I think Patreon, thank God, is still an independent guy. I shouldn't say thank God. They have their own problems. I believe they're still an independent company. It may be just a question of time. Yes, it's impossible to, listen, it's impossible to avoid these platforms. I'm using an Apple computer. I use Gmail. I Google things. You know, when I search, I don't search on I don't even know what what's it right. called. Ask Jeeves. Yeah, yeah. But that's why they need to be regulated as public, well, not as public utilities, but as private utilities. But we regulate private utilities because they're utilities. We can't do without them, and we can't break them up because the whole point is that they everything has to be. You know, we don't want to have twelve electric grids. We need to have one. It's about regulation. Regulation yeah. and the political will to inf- to make politicians. You know to. The, the political will to enable politicians to stand up to big tech. And the weird thing is it's got like now, what, now that big tech can decide which politicians we hear about and which politicians we elect, 
it doesn't bode well. Yeah, it doesn't bode well. I mean, you know, we may be a few months away from the last exit. <laughs> to, I mean, in many respects, we're a few months away from the last exit to perdition. Um, but look, you know, one of the things that I've had to learn for myself in my adult life in high school, I was a senior in high school when Ronald Reagan was elected. So my entire adult life has been lived under the regime of this, but of neoliberalism. But uh, I've learned that history is constantly blindsiding us. Um, the fall of the Soviet Union, 9-11, the financial collapse, the pandemic, Donald Trump. Nobody thought these things were going to happen right before they happened. Even Donald Trump didn't think he was going elect, to get elected. So one of my sources of hope for the future is precisely that the future is never as predictable as we think it's going to be. It's never, it never progresses in a linear way. You remind, Rebecca Solnit, um, who is a feminist writer who I really like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she wrote this book about hope, um, after Katrina and she was in New Orleans and stuff. And she basically defined hope as, um, the admission that we don't know what's going to happen. You know, that, that hope mm. isn't optimism. Hope isn't like, I think everything's going to be great. Exactly. She's like, hope is exactly. I don't know. Um, and you start one of your chapters yeah. in this book by saying, like, I, you know, I hesitate to talk about the future. Um, and right. So, I, uh, yeah. Well, maybe that's not yeah. a bad place to bad place to wrap it. I don't know. I'm, I'm just. Sure. Uh, what, are you work, what are you doing now? Like, you're not teaching it yet. What are you doing? I'm writing. And, you and, know, and I you, mean, you're on the hustle? You're the freelance guy? Yeah, I mean. Listen, I've been f fortunate because I, yeah, I mean, I've been, for most of my money comes either from book advances and I've been fortunate to get decent sized ones and talks specifically since Excellent Sheep. I've been giving a lot of talks at colleges and high schools. I bet. I bet. Um, so, so, so far it's been working out, but you know, as I say in the book, it's kind of a year to year thing for any artist. Yeah, like for any of them. it's yeah. working out now, but yeah. And where are you living? In Portland, in Portland, Oregon, oh, even yeah. though I'm a New Yorker, I'm a sort of a lifetime East Coast person, but uh, my wife and I discovered this place through friends, and um, it's it's uh, interesting to see the country from the other end, and it's nice to get away from the incessant status mongering of the Northeast. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's Portland in particular. I, I was just there a couple of, about a year and a half ago for a wedding with my son and my son-in-law. My son-in-law was a college basketball player and he's a school teacher now, but like he's a big, handsome dude. And my son is this big, handsome dude. And I'm this little bald guy. And, uh, but we're walking down the street and they start talking and they, and after about, you know, we were there for a day and a half, they were like $10 to the first person who spots an alpha male in this town. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or 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 someone who's wearing a jacketed tie. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's, they were just like all these guys. They just look so peaceful and calm, and like nobody would want to punch you in a million years. And like you couldn't get in a bar fight here to save your life. Um, they were just like, and, and they're not they're not that kind of guy. But they were just no, like, I understand. They were like, that's Whoa, exactly right. This is not like. So yeah, I, I bet for a New York for a New Yorker, it, it's got to be a little big, a little bit of a change of pace. Um, and I, I still feel like I'm kind of speaking a second language. Um, I've, I've kind of learned how to, I guess the term is code switch. Yeah. Um, like 
don't talk so fast. Don't be so aggressive. They're going to think you're really angry if you're being this aggressive. They don't understand that this is how you make friends. <laughs> um, no, I'm thinking like that whole exchange we had at the beginning where I'm like, no, you're wrong. You didn't see, what, what about, the? and you're like, yeah, no, right. you, you got that completely off. In Portland, yeah. people would have been like, wow, this didn't go very well. That's right. <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with this guy? I think that's true. <laughs> hey man, it's a joy to talk to you. I'm so glad we did this. Yeah. And I hope we, I really hope we stay in touch, honestly. Oh, listen, you know. I'll, I'll be back at you. And, and, and this is about as helpful as I can probably be, but if, if, if there's, if there's anything where you're like, Bart, like th- th- here's an idea or something, like you let me know. Okay. All right, bro. Take care. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. All right. That was a long conversation. I thought it was a good, I was fascinated all the way through. I thought it was a good conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I would be really thrilled to hear from you. Any feedback you've got on that conversation, questions. um, Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Um, Just so grateful right now. Um, There's so much rough stuff going on, but there's a lot to be grateful for. Um, My dad is doing better. My mom is doing better. For those of you that are curious about that sort of thing, um, I know this is a tough time for a lot of people. And I'm not saying that I'm grateful because I'm untouched by the negativity. I think right right now the trick is to be grateful within the negativity, to find things to celebrate, even as you fight against difficult things or as you try to overcome struggles or as you try to, you know, as we all sort of collectively hold our breath and hope our country can uh, get its get its shit together in this coming election. So, yeah. So great, 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 great to have you be part of it. And if you made it to this part of the podcast, you are of the special few that I love the most. And I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life. Oh, cool.